Chapter Six, Part Number One of Autobiography. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Vicki Rands. Chapter Six, Commencement of the Most Valuable Friendship of My Life, My Father's Death, Writings and Other Proceedings Up to 1840. It was the period of my mental progress which I have now reached that I formed the friendship which has been the honor and chief blessing of my existence, as well as a source of a great part of all that I have attempted to do, or hope to effect hereafter, for human improvement. My first introduction to the lady who, after a friendship of twenty years, consented to become my wife, was in 1830 when I was in my twenty-fifth, and she in her twenty-third year. With her husband's family, it was the renewal of an old acquaintanceship. His grandfather lived in the house next to my father's in Newington Green, and I had sometimes, when a boy, been invited to play in the old gentleman's garden. He was a fine specimen of the old Scotch Puritan, stern, severe, and powerful but very kind to children, on whom such men make a lasting impression. Although it was years after my introduction to Mrs. Taylor, before my acquaintance with her became at all intimate or confidential, I very soon felt her to be the most admirable person I had ever known. It is not to be supposed that she was, or that any one, at the age at which I first saw her, could be, all that she afterwards became. Least of all could this be true of her with whom self-improvement, progress in the highest, and in all senses, was the law of her nature, a necessity equal from the ardor with which she sought it, and from the spontaneous tendency of faculties, which could not receive an impression or an experience without making it the source or the occasion of an accession of wisdom. Up to the time when I first saw her, her rich and powerful nature had chiefly unfolded itself according to the received type of feminine genius. To her outer circle she was a beauty and a wit, with an air of natural distinction, felt by all who approached her to the inner, a woman of deep and strong feeling, of penetrating and intuitive intelligence and of an eminently meditative and poetic nature married at an early age to a most upright brave and honourable man of liberal opinions and good education but without the intellectual or artistic tastes which would have made him a companion for her though a steady and affectionate friend for whom she had true esteem and the strongest affection through life and whom she most deeply lamented when dead, shut out by the social disabilities of women from any adequate exercise of her highest faculties in action on the world without. Her life was one of inward meditation, varied by familiar intercourse with a small circle of friends, of whom one only, long since deceased, was a person of genius, or of capacities of feeling or intellect kindred with her own, but all had more or less of alliance with her in sentiments and opinions. 
Into this circle I had the good fortune to be admitted, and I soon perceived that she possessed in combination the qualities which in all other persons whom I had known I had been only too happy to find singly. In her complete emancipation from every kind of superstition, including that which attributes a pretended perfection to the order of nature and the universe, and an earnest protest against many things which are still part of the established constitution of society, resulted not from the hard intellect, but from strength of noble and elevated feeling, and coexisted with a highly reverential nature. In general, spiritual characteristics, as well as in temperament and organization, I have often compared her, as she was at this time, to Shelley, but in thought and intellect. Shelley, so far as his powers were developed in his short life, was but a child compared with what she ultimately became, alike in the highest regions of speculation and in the smaller practical concerns of daily life, her mind was the same perfect instrument, piercing to the very heart and marrow of the matter, always seizing the essential idea or principle. The same exactness and rapidity of operation, pervading as it did her sensitive as well as her mental faculties, would, with her gifts of feeling and imagination, have fitted her to be a consummate artist as her fiery and tender soul and her vigorous eloquence would certainly have made her a great orator and her profound knowledge of human nature and discernment and sagacity in practical life would in the times when such a career was open to women have made her eminent among the rulers of mankind her intellectual gifts did but minister to a moral character, at once the noblest and the best balance which I had ever met with in life. Her unselfishness was not that of a taught system of duties, but of a heart which thoroughly identified itself with the feelings of others, and often went to excess in consideration for them by imaginatively investing their feelings with the intensity of its own. The passion of justice might have been thought to be her strongest feeling, but for her boundless generosity and a lovingness ever ready to pour itself forth upon any or all human beings who were capable of giving the smallest feeling in return. The rest of her moral characteristics were such as naturally accompany these qualities of mind and heart the most genuine modesty combined with the loftiest pride, a simplicity and sincerity which were absolute towards all who were fit to receive them, the utmost scorn of whatever was mean and cowardly, and a burning indignation at everything brutal or tyrannical, faithless or dishonorable in conduct and character, while making the broadest distinction between mala and se and mere mala prohibita between acts giving evidence of intrinsic badness in feeling and character and those which are only violations of conventions either good or bad violations which 
whether in themselves right or wrong, are capable of being committed by persons in every other respect lovable or admirable. To be admitted into any degree of mental intercourse with a being of these qualities could not but have a most beneficial influence on my development. Though the effect was only gradual, in many years elapsed before her mental progress and mine went forward in the complete companionship they at last attained. The benefit I received was far greater than any which I could hope to give, though to her, who had at first reached her opinions by the moral intuition of a character of strong feeling, there was doubtless help as well as encouragement to be derived from one who had arrived at many of the same results by study and reasoning, and in the rapidity of her intellectual growth, her mental activity, which converted everything into knowledge, doubtless drew from me, as it did from other sources, many of its materials. What I owe, even intellectually, to her, is in its detail almost infinite. Of its general character a few words will give some, though a very imperfect idea. With those who, like all the best and wisest of mankind, are dissatisfied with human life as it is, and whose feelings are wholly identified with its radical amendment, there are two main regions of thought. One is the region of ultimate aims, the constituent elements of the highest realizable ideal of human life. The other is that of the immediately useful and practically attainable. In both these departments I have acquired more from her teaching than from all other sources taken together. And to say truth, it is in these two extremes, principally, that real certainty lies. My own strength lay wholly in the uncertain and slippery intermediate region, that of theory or moral and political science, respecting the conclusions of which, in any of the forms in which I have received or originated them, whether as political economy, analytic psychology, logic, philosophy of history, or anything else, it is not the least of my intellectual obligations to her that I have derived from her a wise skepticism, which while it has not hindered me from following out the honest exercise of my thinking faculties, to whatever conclusion might result from it, has put me on my guard against holding or announcing these conclusions with a degree of confidence which the nature of such speculation does not warrant, and has kept my mind not only open to admit, but prompt to welcome and eager to seek, even on the questions on which I have most meditated, any prospect of clearer perceptions and better evidence. I have often received praise which in my own right I only partially deserve, for the greater practicality which is supposed to be found in my writings compared with those of most thinkers who have been equally addicted to large generalizations. The writings in which this quality has been observed were not the work of one mind, but of the fusion of two. One of them, as preeminently practical in its judgments and perceptions of things present, 
as it was high and bold in its anticipations for a remote futurity at the present period however this influence was only one among many which were helping to shape the character of my future development and even after it became i may truly say the presiding principle of my mental progress it did not alter the path but only made me move forward more boldly and at the same time more cautiously in the same course the only actual revolution which has ever taken place in my modes of thinking was already complete my new tendencies had to be confirmed in some respects moderated in others but the only substantial changes of opinion that were yet to come related to politics and consisted on one hand in a greater approximation so far as regards the ultimate prospects of humanity to a qualified socialism and on the other a shifting of my political ideal from pure democracy as commonly understood by its partisans to the modified form of it which is set forth in my considerations on representative government this last change which took place very gradually dates its commencement from my reading or rather study of m de tocqueville's democracy in america which fell into my hands immediately after its first appearance in that remarkable work the excellences of democracy were pointed out in a more conclusive because a more specific manner than i had ever known them to be even by the most enthusiastic democrats while the specific dangers which beset democracy considered as the government of the numerical majority were brought into equally strong light and subjected to a masterly analysis not as reasons for resisting what the author considered as an inevitable result of human progress but as indications of the weak points of popular government the defenses by which it needs to be guarded and the correctives which must be added to it in order that while full play is given to its beneficial tendencies those which are of a different nature may be neutralized or mitigated i was now well prepared for speculations of this character and from this time onward my thoughts moved more and more in the same channel though the consequent modifications in my practical political creed were spread over many years as would be shown by comparing my first review of democracy in america written and published in eighteen thirty five with the one in eighteen forty reprinted in the dissertations and this last with the considerations on representative government a collateral subject on which also i derived great benefit from the study of tocqueville was the fundamental question of centralization the powerful philosophic analysis which he applied to american and to french experience led him to attach the utmost importance to the performance of as much of the collective business of society as can safely be so performed by the people themselves without any intervention 
of the executive government, either to supersede their agency or to dictate the manner of its exercise. He viewed this practical political activity of the individual citizen not only as one of the most effectual means of training the social feelings and practical intelligence of the people, so important in themselves and so indispensable to good government, but also as the specific counteractive to some of the characteristic infirmities of democracy, and a necessary protection against its degenerating into the only despotism of which in the modern world there is real danger the absolute rule of the head of the executive over a congregation of isolated individuals all equals but all slaves there was indeed no immediate peril from this source on the british side of the channel where nine-tenths of the internal business which elsewhere devolves on the government was transacted by agencies independent of it where centralization was and is the subject not only of rational disapprobation but of an unreasoning prejudice where jealousy of government interference was a blind feeling preventing or resisting even the most beneficial exertion of legislative authority to correct the abuses of what pretends to be local self-government but is too often selfish mismanagement of local interests by a jobbing and born local oligarchy but the more certain the public were to go wrong on the side opposed to centralization the greater danger was their lest philosophic reformers should fall into the contrary error and overlook the mischiefs of which they had been spared the painful experience. I was myself at this very time actively engaged in defending important measures, such as the great poor law reform of 1834, against an irrational clamor grounded on the anti-centralization prejudice and had it not been for the lessons of tocqueville i do not know that i might not like many reformers before me have been hurried into excess opposite to that which being the one prevalent in my own country it was generally my business to combat as it is i have steered carefully between the two errors and whether I have or have not drawn the line between them exactly in the right place, I have at least insisted with equal emphasis upon the evils on both sides, and have made the means of reconciling the advantages of both a subject of serious study. In the meanwhile had taken place the election of the first reformed parliament, which included several of the most notable of my radical friends and acquaintances, Grote, Roebuck, Buller, Sir William Molesworth, John and Edward Romilly, and several more, besides Warburton, Strutt, and others, who were in Parliament already. Those who thought themselves 
and were called by their friends the philosophic radicals had now it seemed a fair opportunity in a more advantageous position than they had ever before occupied for showing what was in them and i as well as my father founded great hopes on them these hopes were destined to be disappointed the men were honest and faithful to their opinions as far as votes were concerned often in spite of much discouragement when measures were proposed flagrantly at variance with their principles such as the irish coercion bill or the canada coercion in eighteen thirty seven they came forward manfully and braved any amount of hostility and prejudice rather than desert the right but on the whole they did very little to promote any opinions they had little enterprise little activity they left the lead of the radical portion of the house to the old hands to hume and o'connell a partial exception must be made in favor of one or two of the younger men and in the case of roebuck it is his title to permanent remembrance that in the very first year during which he sat in parliament he originated or reoriginated after the unsuccessful attempt of mr brougham the parliamentary movement for national education and that he was the first to commence and for years carried on almost alone the contest for the self-government of the colonies nothing on the whole equal to these two things was done by any other individual even of those from whom most was expected and now in a calm retrospect i can perceive that the men were less in fault than we supposed and that we had expected too much from them they were in unfavorable circumstances their lot was cast in the ten years of inevitable reaction when the reform excitement being over and the few legislative improvements which the public really called for having been rapidly effected power gravitated back in its natural direction to those who were for keeping things as they were when the public mind desired rest and was less disposed than at any other period since the peace to let itself be moved by attempts to work up the reform feeling into fresh activity in favor of new things it would have required a great political leader which no one is to be blamed for not being to have effected really great things by parliamentary discussion when the nation was in this mood my father and i hoped that some competent leader might arise some man of philosophic attainments and popular talents who could have put heart into the many younger or less distinguished men that would have been ready to join him could have made them available to the extent of their talents in bringing advanced ideas before the public could have used the house of commons as a rostra or a teacher's chair for instructing and impelling the public mind and would either have forced the whigs to receive their measures from him or have taken the lead of the reform party out of their hands such a leader there would have been if my father had been in parliament 
for want of such a man the instructed radicals sank into a mere coat gauche of the whig party with a keen and as i now think an exaggerated sense of possibilities which were open to the radicals if they made even ordinary exertion for their opinions i labored from this time till eighteen thirty nine both by personal influence with some of them and by writings to put ideas into their heads and purpose into their hearts i did some good with charles buller and some with sir william molesworth both of whom did valuable service but were unhappily cut off almost in the beginning of their usefulness on the whole however my attempt was vain to have had a chance of succeeding in it required a different position from mine it was a task only for one who being himself in parliament could have mixed with radical members in daily consultation could himself have taken the initiative and instead of urging others to lead could have summoned them to follow what i could do by writing i did during the year eighteen thirty three i continued working in the examiner with von blanc who at the time was zealous in keeping up the fight for radicalism against the whig ministry during the session of eighteen thirty four i wrote comments on passing events of the nature of newspaper articles under the title notes on the newspapers in the monthly repository a magazine conducted by mr fox well known as a preacher and political orator and subsequently as member of parliament for oldham with whom i had lately become acquainted and for whose sake chiefly i wrote in his magazine i contributed several other articles to this periodical the most considerable of which on the theory of poetry is reprinted in the dissertations altogether the writings independently of those in newspapers which i published from eighteen thirty two to eighteen thirty four amount to a large volume this however includes abstracts of several of plato's dialogues with introductory remarks which though not published until eighteen thirty four had been written several years earlier and which i afterwards on various occasions found to have been read and their authorship known by more people than were aware of anything else which i had written up to that time to complete the tale of my writings at this period i may add that in eighteen thirty three at the request of bulwer who was just then completing his england and the english a work at the time greatly in advance of the public mind i wrote for him a critical account of bentham's philosophy a small part of which he incorporated in his text and printed the rest with an honourable acknowledgment as an appendix in this along with the favourable a part also of the unfavourable side of my estimation of bentham's doctrines considered as a complete philosophy was for the first time put into print but an opportunity soon offered by which as it seemed i might have it in my power to give more effectual aid and at the same time stimulus to the philosophic radical party than i had done hitherto one of the projects occasionally talked of between my father and me 
and some of the parliamentary and other radicals who frequented his house was the foundation of a periodical organ of philosophic radicalism to take the place which the westminster review had been intended to fill and the scheme had gone so far as to bring under discussion the pecuniary contributions which could be looked for and the choice of an editor nothing however came of it for some time but in the summer of eighteen thirty four sir william molesworth himself a laborious student and a precise and metaphysical thinker capable of aiding the cause by his pen as well as by his purse spontaneously proposed to establish a review provided i would consent to be the real if i could not be the ostensible editor such a proposal was not to be refused and the review was founded at first under the title of the london review and afterwards under that of the london and westminster molesworth having bought the westminster from its proprietor general thompson and merged the two into one in the years between eighteen thirty four and eighteen forty the conduct of this review occupied the greater part of my spare time in the beginning it did not as a whole by any means represent my opinions i was under the necessity of conceding much to my inevitable associates the review was established to be the representative of the philosophic radicals with most of whom i was now at issue on many essential points and among whom i could not even claim to be the most important individual my father's cooperation as a writer we all deemed indispensable and he wrote largely in it until prevented by his last illness the subjects of his articles and the strength and decision with which his opinions were expressed in them made the review at first derive its tone and colouring from him much more than from any of the other writers i could not exercise editorial control over his articles and i was sometimes obliged to sacrifice to him portions of my own the old westminster review doctrines but little modified thus formed the staple of the review but i hoped by the side of these to introduce other ideas and another tone and to obtain for my own shade of opinion a fair representation along with those of other members of the party with this end chiefly in view i made it one of the peculiarities of the work that every article should bear an initial or some other signature and be held to express the opinion solely of the individual writer the editor being only responsible for its being worth publishing and not in conflict with the objects for which the review was set on foot i had an opportunity of putting in practice my scheme of conciliation between the old and the new philosophic radicalism by the choice of a subject for my own first contribution professor sedgwick a man of eminence in a particular walk of natural science but who should not have trespassed into philosophy had lately published his discourse on the studies of cambridge 
which had as its most prominent feature an intemperate assault on analytic psychology and utilitarian ethics in the form of an attack on locke and paley this had excited great indignation in my father and others which i thought it fully deserved and here i imagined was an opportunity of at the same time repelling an unjust attack and inserting into my defence of hartleanism and utilitarianism a number of the opinions which constituted my view of those subjects as distinguished from that of my old associates in this i partially succeeded though my relation to my father would have made it painful to me in any case and impossible in a review for which he wrote to speak out my whole mind on the subject at this time i am however inclined to think that my father was not so much opposed as he seemed to the modes of thought in which i believe myself to differ from him that he did injustice to his own opinions by the unconscious exaggerations of an intellect emphatically polemical and that when thinking without an adversary in view he was willing to make room for a great portion of the truths he seemed to deny i have frequently observed that he made large allowance in practice for considerations which seemed to have no place in his theory his fragment on mackintosh which he wrote and published about this time although i greatly admired some parts of it i read as a whole with more pain than pleasure yet on reading it again long after i found little in the opinions it contains but what i think in the main just and i can even sympathize in his disgust at the verbiage of mackintosh though his asperity towards it went not only beyond what was judicious but beyond what was even fair one thing which i thought at the time of good augury was the very favorable reception he gave to tocqueville's democracy in america it is true he said and thought much more about what tocqueville said in favor of democracy than about what he said of its disadvantages still his high appreciation of a book which was at any rate an example of a mode of treating the question of government almost the reverse of his wholly inductive and analytical instead of purely ratiocinative gave me great encouragement he also approved of an article which i published in the first number following the junction of the two reviews the essay reprinted in the dissertations under the title civilization into which i threw many of my new opinions and criticized rather emphatically the mental and moral tendencies of the time on grounds and in a manner which i certainly had not learnt from him all speculation however on the possible future developments of my father's opinions and on the probabilities of permanent cooperation between him and me in the promulgation of our thoughts was doomed to be cut short during the whole of eighteen thirty five his health had been declining the symptoms became unequivocally those of pulmonary consumption and after lingering to the last stage of debility he died on the twenty third of june eighteen thirty six 
until the last few days of his life there was no apparent abatement of intellectual vigor his interest in all things and persons that had interested him throughout life was undiminished nor did the approach of death cause the smallest wavering as in so strong and firm a mind it was impossible that it should in his convictions on the subject of religion his principal satisfaction after he knew that his end was near seemed to be the thought of what he had done to make the world better than he found it and his chief regret in not living longer that he had not had time to do more end of chapter six part one recording by vicky rands